I think I'm a problem solver at heart. So when problems happen, want to get to the bottom of it, do it in really blameless ways. I feel lucky to have worked in organizations where you have to be able to talk about your failures, your mistakes, and what you're doing to correct them. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Farrow, a seasoned executive who lives at the center of customer-focused product and technology innovation. I've been a fan and followed Amy over the last number of years. She's led teams of all shapes and sizes through hyper growth and more at Salesforce, Twitter, and today in her role as CIO of Lyft in San Francisco. She's a collaborator, and as you'll hear, a great listener, but ultimately a problem solver at heart. She's seen companies rise and fall from her first jobs at Sable. She saw the early waves of SaaS products, smaller releases, and faster iteration. She's a phenomenal team builder with a track record of cultivating high-performance teams and culture based on her own experiences. And you'll see in this show, she does this intentionally, understands the value of reflection and leveraging learning to build a better future. This is a fantastic podcast to understand the convergence of customer insights, technology, and product to create great experiences. So let's dive in and hear how it started for her from the early days at the front lines of Seawall technology deployments with customers all over the globe. I also was in a role called expert services. So we kind of did these short-term engagements, maybe a sizing review, maybe a performance, you know, production health check. So they were very targeted. It wasn't like an eight, 10, 12 week implementation. So one of the things that I learned was I got perspective across many customers very quickly and you saw patterns and, and challenges and problems. Uniquely to me, working up in Australia in APAC, I mean, the other dimension I loved is I went to very different companies, cultures, you know, banks, banks were very prevalent, you know, telcos, like, so this diversity of company, diversity of culture, diversity of experience. So that was really fun for me that I don't think I ever could have imagined I would achieve in a few years. It was not as glamorous as it sounds. My friends thought it was, <laughs> but I, I was just traveling all the time and often on like a couple of days notice. So it was also quite hard to acclimate to Australia when I was never there. I still, to this day, think I flew out of there in and out of that country more than the U.S., where is my home country. (laughs) So I think that was one. I think I learned a lot. And one of the most interesting things I learned, this is actually quite comical. So let's see what you think about it. But one of the funniest things that I learned is, so my title was expert services. I was like basically a consultant. I would go and really help them improve their, reorient their, their Siebel kind of implementation. And so I was very much like the technologist. I am focused on the technology and we had technical account managers and sometimes they would want to talk to me. And I was like, I was like early to mid twenties. I mean, I was still learning a lot of just the working world and they would sit me down for an hour and walk me through the influencers the current climate at the customer, all of these things that I considered completely tangential to my job. (laughs) That's another probably thing that influenced me long-term with program management, because it's like, there's what you see and then there's what you don't see. 
And often what you don't see is more impactful than what you do see. Right on. So candidly, like, like imagine this optic that I couldn't figure out. I'm this person coming in and I'm going to write a 30 page report saying, Hey, these are the things to tune your database. These are the things to tune your web tier. These are the, and imagine how threatening that could be to some of the people I'm working with. Right. So those experiences, those situations, I did not understand. And it was just kind of funny. And sometimes I would have them telling me all about the the political nature of all, all the leaders in the company and what I could say and what I couldn't say. You can imagine going to certain countries, certain cultures. I appreciated those, but it was, it, it just showed me how much I had to learn about, like I said, like what you see and then what you can't see and, and really what kind of influences outcomes in kind of surprising ways. So I think gave me really good perspective looking back. At the time, I legitimately was like, I don't know. Why are these people why telling me all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I'm yeah. a technical person. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess the other piece you asked, just entering Salesforce, I think I learned a lot about customer focus there for sure. I think that it was really in the DNA. You know, Mark really created a company that really was customer focused and it wasn't in the appearance of famously, he would recommend we hand our business card to a customer anytime you see them and just offer them your help, no matter what your role. But I would say that the thing that I was most excited about and somewhat naive about when I joined Salesforce was, oh, so now all of your incentives are aligned. Engineering and operations are in one company. It's got to be easy. I mean, so yes, you work for one company, you're delivering the end-to-end experience for the customer's but you still have a very like very different cultures you're trying to manage across. So you've got engineering who's incentivized to drive change, deliver innovation, and you have operations who are really focused at stability. One of the things that I ultimately tried to do was kind of bridge and bring those groups together and kind of get the best out of both. But I thought that it would be magical and easy and it would definitely was not. Well, it's funny, like as you're describing these sort of they're not short flights between North America and Australia to sort of spend time with customers, but um, it's such an interesting uh, sort of training ground to like learn to hear what concerns people have. Like you might be just showing up, oh, this is the technology expert, but they want to give you context. As you say, the stuff you can see mm-hmm. or can't see is often the stuff that catches you out. Today, like if, you know, product managers will call this going, doing customer discovery. It's a key part of building great products, delivering great service. And, and then, you know, as, as you're sort of describing how you sort of find this natural home and sort of analogy for that as you go into Salesforce, where, yeah, Mark's encouraging people, if you hear a customer have a problem, you make yourself available to help solve that at, at all costs. And you, you bring that information back to the team about how we can build and improve our product, right? Like, these sort of methods now are very much, it's almost like hesitant to say commonplace, but they're seen as if you're not doing them, you're going to struggle. So how did you know and start to see that this was actually ultimately becoming competitive advantage to let, you know, Salesforce just skyrockets now at this point, right? Like this is early 2000s, you're, you're seeing like good information coming in from customers and then sharing that information with different internal stakeholders, engineering product. And then again, your forte of bringing these people together to execute on something and deliver, right? Like hard problems, trade-offs. 
And again, this technology is, it's an emerging technology at the time, SaaS products. So the technology would fail and we, you'd be figuring it out why it failed, right? It, it, rather than it being known. So how did you help people through those sort of difficult moments? Like technology was a failure. We got the customer stuff wrong. We were shipping late. What were some of the sort of skills you were starting to build in that role then as, as you know, because Salesforce was a rocket ship at this stage, right? How did you keep people yeah. in line with the company scaling at that fast? What's actually really interesting is, yeah, I joined when it was about 1,200 people. It was a little bit less than a year after they'd gone public. I think still a lot of the customer base were smaller companies. So one of the big priorities was ultimately kind of moving upstream. At the time, really, that loss of control was something that a lot of IT and just you know leadership in, in these large corporations wasn't comfortable with aspect is we were working through that. And so I was on a few cases, kind of like an internal, um, I don't even remember what we called it, but kind of a, a contact point inside of kind of engineering and technology for some of those strategic accounts. So that's one. But another interesting point, when I joined the company, they were really having somewhat of a, a very significant challenge in, they'd had, you know, multi-hour outages and this is, you know, as I was interviewing, actually, and it was a really interesting and, and challenging time because what they had done is had been, you know, doing seasonal releases and the idea that like the software, like it just changes or your application changes as spring comes and as, <laughs> and, and as summer comes. But what yeah. happened was they, yeah. they were really struggling to scale and actually be able to deliver on that cadence. And so what had happened is their release cycles got longer and longer and often were followed by some degree of outages. You know, outages, we, yeah. we all know now that if you have long periods without change and you introduce a lot of change, the risk is a lot higher. So one of the things that I spent a lot of time on in the first year, and a lot of us did, was ultimately really building that resilience in getting, this is when trust.salesforce.com was stood up and ultimately focusing on not just on customers, but really on building that trust. And that became, I mean, I'm not at Salesforce anymore, but that kind of, I believe, has stood the test of time as really the top priority. And Salesforce learning the utility of the service was more, and the consistency and the availability was more important than any one feature. And really that that's what the customers valued over, you know, they, they value innovation, but they really value consistency, availability, especially as a service becomes mission critical. And so I think that was one thing we had to really manage through. And that led to a bunch of other changes at Salesforce. In terms of me, I think I'm a problem solver at heart. So when problems happen, want to get to the bottom of it, do it in really blameless ways. I feel lucky to have worked in organizations where you have to be able to talk about your failures, your mistakes, and what you're doing to correct them. Otherwise, you will actually have absolutely no kind of risk taking your innovation. And so led with that, bring people together really try and leverage the expertise of others. And, you know, I think that's probably where my strengths are, alignment, communication, bringing people together, challenging. Why do we think that's the right direction? Why not this direction? And really helping amplify, you know, a group of people who independently wouldn't maybe be able to accomplish as much on their own. So uh, I think another really interesting point for me here is some of these things sort of go hand in hand. You know, I, I often find when 
you're working with companies where they have big release cycles or slow iteration. Yeah, sure. More features are pushed in. So more things break and and more frustration happens and frustration shows up then in in poorer you know relationships or behavior of people inside companies right they're frustrated as things aren't working and yet this sort of counterintuitive tactic that as you said e- even in the these days of early SaaS products like the notion of continuous delivery or doing these like constant small changes more frequently so you know smaller changes easier to recognize breaking fixing things quicker learning what works all these patterns are still sort of very much emerging, right? And and it's it's really, I mm-hmm. think, only in the last few years, like when um, Dr. Nicole Froschgren and Jez, who wrote Lean Enterprise at Me, published Accelerate on, on these metrics that said that high-performance companies have high availability, the mean time to mm-hmm. deployments, the frequency of deployments. These are all the sort of like leading software indicators that you'd have a high-performance team because they could make small changes. They could make small mistakes. and People could openly talk about mistakes. That was fine. Mm-hmm. We made it was a small mistake. We've learned from it, and we can sort of respond quickly and address it, and actually make progress. Like we're learning faster than our competition, and that's great when you have all these sort of mechanisms of deployments. You know, and you've worked and are working in companies, you know, like Twitter and Lyft, where you've amazing engineering capability to drop mm-hmm. stuff whenever you want. But mm-hmm. it's a lot harder mm-hmm. when the feedback cycles are slow where many more people are. So then the conversations are harder because people are looking for people to blame or point or people to point finger at. So what were some of the tactics you learned on, at this stage when you were in the slower cycle types of environments where you actually had to build yeah. a culture of people to be okay with mistakes happening? Because I think that's where most people are. They're not in a thousand deployments an hour world where you can make a mistake, fix it, and then we go. I think a lot of people are are in in the tougher, slower cycle, and then still build this culture of blamelessness and curiosity and what have we learned? How will we make it better? What were some of the things you learned at that stage in your career that have probably only helped you accelerate now in, in the companies you spend time in later? Yeah, I think probably the most important thing I learned during that phase. So again, I think I joined at this really interesting time at Salesforce. It's a little bit like the Siebel story of like, if it was just the rise, that wouldn't have been as interesting as kind of the rise in the fall. It's really good to see kind of both sides. And so I think seeing Salesforce, you know, struggle during some of those availability challenges and how they responded, you know, one taught me and how we responded, I should say, I guess, taught me like, okay, you know, things happen. It's a lot of times how you deal with it and how you, how you react. And you can look back at like why it happened. You should do that later but don't, don't dwell, just kind of go forward and focus on a plan to kind of move forward. I think that's generally in a crisis or in a challenge, like what I remember, and I think what most remember, because all things are not unavoidable or not avoidable. But what was interesting is that year was we'd moved to these year cycles. And basically the way we were working was just not sustainable. We had to get back to a more regular cadence. We needed to be more agile. I use that word on purpose. So we went through, I was lucky to be part of, not leading, but part of this pretty big bang agile transformation with really amazing executive sponsorship, but tons of empowerment on the ground for us to figure things out. And so studying a problem and really thinking like, what is the right way to kind of solve this? 
And we leverage experts, we leveraged help, we leverage internal kind of influencers within the company. And that's probably one of the most transformational learning experiences I've had. And, and I can explain why. So as we did this agile transformation, we wanted to move back to three to four releases a year, which I think Salesforce still does. We set that cadence of, kind of we settled on going back to a three release cadence that my team helped establish and, and continues to lead. But was ultimately moving from waterfall to agile, all of the aspects of the role of the manager, the role of a program manager. I mean, we talk about unlearn, unlearning. How do you create a self-organizing team? As managers, you have to actually like have some trust and step back. And what I remember during that period, I remember it very fondly, but I also remember we were very kind of not 100% sure we were like, we were yeah. getting it right because you never, yeah, yeah, never know. No, yeah, that's it. That's proper but it's innovation. But yeah. I felt like every day I had to kind of check myself. When you're trying to change your behavior, it's like almost every day that default is so natural. So I found it like that cognitive load just really high of constantly like introspecting. And we were lucky to have some coaches around us. I remember in one meeting, I think I was a scrum master for one of these teams. And the coach told me after when you, I don't know, he just gave me some feedback and I just was like, oh, that was so great. Cause I thought, you know, by doing this action, I was being helpful. And, oh, I understand how it would be interpreted this way. Like I was kind of usurping the team by just one thing I said without trying to, but just that idea of I'm constantly rethinking how I think about my role, my job, how I engage, and then really seeing one of the cha biggest challenges we saw there, this is less a personal thing, but something we observed that was really hard was the role of the manager. We had you know, engineering managers, we had QE managers, we had a lot of managers. They were really questioning like, what is the right way to engage? And I think it was one of those things we learned later. Maybe we needed to give them more support. We really supported the product managers and product owners, and we supported the scrum masters. But then we had these kind of managers who were kind of, what is my role now? I so vividly remember just like every day, like having to forcefully think about your actions, which is like really unnatural. <laughs> Absolutely right. And I think the other thing is you mentioned cognitive load, like it's work. And we're so programmed to like be activity-based, execution-focused, do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. What's the next task? I get onto that, especially when you're leading a lot of complex work. But the reflection piece always gets dropped. Like so mm -hmm. many teams drop their retrospective when they've got mm -hmm. a release because, no, we got to spend that time on building more stuff. Or as you say, like individually, we're, we're so executing our tasks. We never sit back and reflect and say what's working here, what doesn't. Sometimes it requires a prompt. Sometimes, that's, sometimes that prompt is a bug because the site goes down. Sometimes it's a peer or a coach like giving you feedback, maybe even unprompted, which, which can help you get that insight. But I just think so many people miss that reflection is actually work. And it's the harder part of the work as well is to really synthesize what's working here, what's not, what should I do yeah. differently? And it always seems to go by the wayside in these transformation initiatives or people are doing things for the first time. Like even crisis management, you mentioned this, yeah. right? Like taking a small step, seeing what you've learned, then take the next step into the uncertainty. Like that, that iteration is pretty important. Not just like doing things and execute it. That just causes more problem in a crisis. How do you catch yourself then? All these different roles, like you've done so many interesting roles is always the thing I like about, about yourself. And what were some of the different types of things you would see or patterns you saw as you went through various different other companies where 
people were trying to change or innovate or taking steps. Like, you know, Twitter was building into the unknown still. Lyft, you're still figuring out what autonomous driving could mean. Like, there's so many of these unknown spaces, you know, you're working in. Like, how do you help yourself to catch and reflect and make sure the team are doing that or that information has been synthesized to see you make a next better good decision? Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm still working on it, but I I think... um, (laughs) Aren't we all? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one bad pattern I see is this belief that you kind of retrospect if you do at the end. And I'm always just like, no, no, no. Why would you wait till that? I mean, you should do it then too, but why would you wait? I also think I'm seeing in my new role, CIO at Lyft, like I'm seeing more as I work with like the finance organization or other functional units, which are different than core product engineering technology teams, which I think are naturally over the last 10 years, like a little more kind of self-organizing. I think they kind of have come to adopt, I would say agile as kind of the way they tend to work. It might not be perfect agile or what have you, but like it's, they don't even call it. It's just how they work. And I see like when we bring something like a retrospective to an ERP project, like I'm seeing that is maybe something a little bit newer to different parts of the organization. So I see a lot of potential and excitement there. So we try to do that, but I would say the counter pattern of waiting till the end is one I, I really dislike. I also think you can do these things in multiple ways. Like at the start of this year, we did a lot of celebrating accomplishments last year. I think everyone had to celebrate accomplishments last year. Oh, I think yeah. everyone in the world felt that way. Let's accomplish <laughs> what we survived and what was good. But I also kind of felt like there was all this negative energy that people needed to just name. And so we were kind of like, how do we do that? Because I'm like, I don't want to be a downer. We kind of write, retros or end of year, like 10 QBR annual, you know, year closeout. I tend to write one of those every year, but I was like, well, I don't want to write all that down. It's just kind of drags you down. But I was like, I feel like people need to let it go. So we just kind of did an org wide, my team, which is like people work on different things, you know, like 130 people optional come and we're going to run a retro to just get out some of that. What was bad? You know, what was good? And then what do we want to change? And you know, some things we definitely learned from it, but I also just felt like people needed to like yeah, let it release. go and move on and yeah, more than yeah, any yeah. other year. <laughs> yeah, so good. It's so funny. You're reminding me of another example of someone we both know. So Stephen Franchetti, who's CIO at Slack, right? One, one of the things they did this year, I thought was really great. Him and Nicole, who works with him, they just like went out and sourced all the like little, little wins that every individual on their team had like they they did this little discovery actually in a weird kind of way to capture like some some more positivity of what had happened through the year because small wins were so important with the struggle and then Stephen dropped every single one of the members of the team just a small little note just Mm. to go you know hey Barry this thing that you probably even didn't know I know you did was awesome thanks Mm. for doing that Mm. and it had this sort of outpouring in people of just like wow, I I feel recognized. I feel like my contribution is done. Mm -hmm. And here's how I'm going to try and even get better next year. And and I just like so powerful, these like tiny little acts, especially, you know, as you say, the adversity everybody has been through. And had another great lady on the podcast, uh, Sarah Wood, who she took over from Stuart Butterfield after he sort of, you know, gave 
Flickr to Yahoo. She would run product for him. And now she runs this really interesting sort of energy electricity business. And they had to scale from 40 to 400 people all remotely through the pandemic and build software like and people never know each other and so much mm-hmm. challenges and struggle and people in different countries from uh, Portugal to London. And, and one of the things she ca- said loads on the show was just all these small little steps being celebrated. Like we, we achieved this like small little thing today and here's what we're going to do tomorrow. Had just such a profound impact on building team, on building trust, mm-hmm. on role modeling when people made mistakes, mm-hmm. calling them out. Like and just upping the bar in terms of the culture you want to create in the company. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you've obviously had that similar experience, you know, with this year as well with yourself and your team, you know. So what has it encouraged you to probably, and, and we're all learning, as you said, I love when you say things like that. How has it evolved your thinking now as a leader as to what are you going to try and do differently in this year to try and build upon what you saw from this reflection? mechanism and being intentional about putting it in there and celebrating the small steps and maybe the failures too as well. Number one, I think it's important that people who participate in these things feel like it matters. So I think taking action on a couple of the things there is really meaningful. So I've already done that. I just know like, it's like if you ask for feedback 10 times, you never act on it, like just stop asking, just go do something. (laughs) So I know that. I think that's really important. I think on the point of recognition, I think it's like people need to be seen or want to be seen. I think like you don't have to do that much in recognition, but these small acts mean a lot. And so I think remembering that in general, continuing to, and I just came out of a meeting right before this that that kind of helped influence this, but just continuing to get to know people, you know, we're all humans working together. And I, you know, it was in a leadership meeting, my peers, and, you know, we had a breakout and I learned you know, I spent nine minutes with two of my peers and I learned like a whole bunch of things about them I didn't even know that I actually now want to learn more. And I just, so spending more time on that, I feel like I know my team well, but sometimes, you know, so engaging in those conversations, I think that just builds trust. It builds empathy, builds awareness. You also might learn something that this person has, you know, something to bring to the table that you may have not known. I think what I continue to try to do is really build team. And so to me, you can only do that by getting people to work together, communicate together, solve problems together. And so sometimes it takes longer, maybe, but I still think in the end, the net result is better. And I think that's why, at least for me personally, I think through a lot of challenges last year, I was able to keep a team pretty engaged in terms of both feeling part of the company, participation, showing up, but also like really kind of delivered a lot of amazing work. So I think you can kind of be supportive and continue to challenge people at the same time. That's something I continue to strive for. This year in particular, I think last year felt a little bit like survival (laughs) for a lot of us. I think everyone. This year, this year feels a little bit more like opportunity. I think I feel like there's some opportunity to reinvent, maybe to unlearn some things that we ways we used to work. I mean, we already have, right? Like we had to kind of figure it out this last year. Now it's, I think like we had to figure it out. We had to survive. We had to kind of, you know, I I say we want to survive and thrive, but we really had to survive. But now it's like, what opportunities open now in terms of, you know, and I think a lot about this, we're actively having this conversation at Lyft, but I think a lot about this around when do you need to collaborate and when do you need really that cohesion, that collective wisdom, that unity in thought? And when do you actually need 
want to go off and kind of more deeply focus. Because I think one of the things that I've found for myself and my teams I work with, you need a balance of those two. You need like right to put blinders on and focus and do deep, mm-hmm. thoughtful work, but you also need to collaborate. And so how do you find the right balance? You could argue in an office culture that many of us worked in before, I, there were moments we took collaboration for granted. Like just because you can doesn't mean you should. Like it's easy. Well, Barry's right next to me. I'll just go ask him that question. Or maybe I'll revisit that decision. I don't know. But like, I think sometimes it was almost too easy. And so I think about that. I don't have answers. I just think about it a lot. And that I'm really excited about for this year, which I think is different. It feels like an opening this year versus last year was kind of just like a little bit of a, like I said, survive mentality. Well, it's funny. I've been writing a blog this month. It's so much in line with what you've just been describing. Because I've, I've seen so many polar opposites along some of the points you just made, like one of them, like the getting to know your work colleagues, like where is the space for that? Like you said, like the team has intentionally created a little space where for seven minutes, and it's only seven, it doesn't sound like a lot of time, but like you're going to talk to some of your peers that maybe are about non-work stuff. So you get to know them better. So the leadership team Mm -hmm. has empathy, trust, and you perform better, right? Like so important to think about that and be intentional designing it. I think it's a really, really great point. I do agree with you and seen this in uh, across the board. So many companies sort of froze last year. They didn't even think about where it's uncertain. How do we learn our way through it? They just froze. They stopped. So they didn't learn anything. And again, mm-hmm. counterintuitively in a crisis, you don't freeze. You take small little steps and learn your way through that. So Mm-hmm. It's interesting now, you obviously took that approach. So you're looking to this year as opportunity. I think so many people are still stuck in this frozen mindset. Let's wait out till the storm's over or, but they're yeah. not learning anything. They're going backwards. Again, counterintuitive point, I think that's so important. But I think all of this comes down to what you're sort of saying, or I'm hearing, is you've got to be intentional about Steps you take in uncertainty mm-hmm. about getting to know your team and building trust, not just work stuff, but understanding them as people, thinking about when to collaborate and when to work, like finding out as a team, where's the time you need to make, where's the time you need mm-hmm. to reflect, where's the team time you need to come together, really starting to look at some of that. I think that's the space we're in right now. And the teams that will be high performing will actually reflect on how they're working together. Like, should yeah. we not do meetings the first three hours of the day so people can dig into their code and build things. And Mm -hmm. the teams that ask those questions are going to accelerate yet again, I think. And so it's really interesting to hear that that's sort of topic mind for you as well. And some of the little things you're trying, what have you seen work well or anything that you're just naively, some of the anecdotes you're seeing so far as you go through that? Maybe just reflecting on last year, I feel like Lyft's culture and our technology kind of positioned us for probably an easier transition. I won't go into it, but you know, my husband works at a bank, very large yeah, bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Good contrast. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's yeah. like and well, it's amazing how, how they transformed. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. How do I get a VPN? <laughs> well, even just like the trading desk had to change, like all the recorded lines and all that technology and the ways that they work. So I found, you know, for us it was, you know, more natural. We had a flexible kind of work culture. Anyway, if you were you know, had an appointment or whatnot, people would work from home. We, we didn't have the best video kind of 
meeting culture, but better than most. People remember to connect. I remember eras at Twitter where people would not even remember to connect to the video conference. <laughs> so I think in general, we were poised for change, but it was still a really like challenging year. And I think you just had to kind of, it was a challenging year to lead, I would say, because it was hard to get signal, hard to know where yep. your team is, hard to have any kind of serendipitous connection. There's a bunch of people that I used to really enjoy seeing at Lyft and spending time with that I just haven't had to work with and yeah. haven't had the opportunity to run into. And it's just every now and then I'll go, I'll go enter a meeting with them. And it just feels like I haven't seen this person for like eight months. And it's just crazy, you know, but I also think we had to change the way we work. It wasn't like, I think we all learned this early, like don't just take the office culture and replicate it remotely. So I think, we had, you know, we had to figure out what worked and we did a lot of sharing internally and ultimately, you know, tried to you know, establish some best practices to really help different teams kind of be more effective. But I do think we were poised, you know, given kind of our, you know, we were heavy Slack users, heavy, I would say like narrative, maybe heavy is not the right word. Ultimately, we had been kind of on a journey to move to a kind of a more written culture. And that helped tremendously. And, you know, just in the idea of, I definitely found through this experience, a lot of get your thoughts down in one page and then meet, saves many meetings and might even get things resolved that way. So really rethinking, again, even that preciousness of time. I went through an era where with my team, I feel like I went back 15 years and would just pick up the phone. I don't want to talk to you on video. I want to talk to you right now. It's like 140. I'm just going to call. And sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. But it just made it more like a little bit like office culture. Like, well, you're yeah, sitting yeah. right next to me. I just want to talk to you for five minutes. So anyway, I mean, I think that's just reflecting on last year. The other thing I was going to say is I think just work got humanized in the last year because there were a lot of very humanizing events, a lot of, you know, concern with the virus, all of the, you know, racial injustice kind of events across the country last year. But then the other thing someone in my team said to me that I thought was really reflective was like, but also everyone's in your house. It's so good. Like the it's wall the of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it's like, yeah. Some of the, the Zoom and Google backgrounds where you can obfuscate it are like almost, you know, more than an aesthetic. It's like, I've had moments where I've been like, I just kind of don't want people to know to be in my house. Um, and it's just really kind of, those are just some funny things. And so I think it's like in a good way, humanized work, but maybe at a pace we weren't totally prepared for. I still think it's, I don't know. I think it's good because my biggest belief is that people, people, talent are your asset, especially in a company like ours. So that was more looking back than looking forward. But. No, but what I really enjoy, and I'm really with you on one of the best things, I think, of this whole pandemic is you see the whole person now. There isn't so much of a facade because you say, you, we're here chatting now. You can see you know, paintings on my wall. You can see mm -hmm. pens on my you know, desk, whatever it is. And kids running in and out, screaming in between mm -hmm. calls. Like, you know, it's, it's people's life. And I think that is such a, a great breakthrough, if anything, we get from all this. My last parting question for you then is, what are you excited about for the future? What's top of mind for you as we go into this next iteration? I'll do a little personal one and then maybe a work one, because I thought you'd appreciate this, because I thought about, you know, your focus on unlearning. So one thing I'm learning to do right now is ski. And it's really, I'm know, a snowboarder, so I won't judge you. Don't worry. Early, <laughs> early. Well, there's a whole story. I tried something in my twenties and then just kind of just didn't, you know, I also grew up in snow. So for me, it was a little bit like, yeah, I don't need to do that. 
But recently picking it up, learning with my kids and to me, skiing is a little bit of unlearning because it is like not intuitive. It's the opposite of what you think you might do. And I actually think when I think too much, I do worse than when I kind of uh, go with it. Um, yeah, nice. Go with it. or Yeah. So that's one. And that's fun because it's, you know, something that is, uh, I think learning just is exciting, but there's the unlearning aspect. The other personal one right now that's really interesting is, you know, my daughter's 10. She's turning 11 soon. You know, she's like decided she should wants to walk home with her friends from school. So as a parent, you're kind of taking care of these little people for so long. And then at some point you have to step back, give them space, give them autonomy, trust them. That's a little hard, but so going through that, that's a little bit of unlearning too. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of this year, super excited, you know, that it feels like the end of the year. I said to my team starting the year, you know, it might be a rocky year, but we're going to end the year much better than we're starting it. And that's on many, many fronts. But obviously, you know, the vaccine distribution, a huge part of that. Even saying to someone this morning, I think the end of the year might just look complete opposite, like from where we are today. And I almost can't imagine it, but I also think very quickly, we will not even, we will feel like this was all a dream at some point. Uh, so. so that's one. But ultimately, I think it's taking the learnings forward. Like all the things we learned in this year plus what have you of working digitally, working remotely, working much more through video, where I think the work has shown more than some kind of optics that sometimes happen in meetings, especially in the corporate environment. How do we take all the things that we learned and kind of apply them so that we can kind of step change how we work in the future? I don't think we should just go back. I don't think there is going back. I think we can define together though what the next step is. And it's not really that clear exactly what that looks like, but I think similar to how we kind of worked through last year and evolved, we were forced to. Like I was amazed by all the transformation, teaching, my kids, adopting yeah, a technology, yeah. the workplace. And so- we should keep learning forward, like not kind of go back. We should go back to the good things that bring them forward, but take some of the new things we learn. Um, hey, and find Amy, a new standard. What, a, what a great message for everybody to sort of remember. It, it resonates massively with me. Look, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and fun experiences with us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, Barry. It was a lot of fun.